the legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. The other day, I took a short trip over to Erica Janik's house, Outside In's executive producer. I was not just there to pet her dog. Oh, but you're so cute. <laughs> I was there to visit Erica's workshop. Sam, this is my sewing room. It's kind of a mess. You've got like an IV bag for your iron? I do, I do, in case, you know, I need to... <laughs> Erica makes all of her own clothes. Mostly dresses, mostly whimsical patterns and prints like typewriters, uh, bespectacled stags, little bears with parasols. Like, I, do I need this many dresses? Probably not. But, you know, if I need, like, a shirt, I can just make myself one. Sometimes I feel like Mrs. Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. Erica invited me over here to witness just one of the invisible costs of making clothes. The thing that most of us who buy our clothes at stores never really see. Scraps. Wasted fabric. I'm just going to show you how much waste I have from one year. That's one. One giant Rubbermaid tub. Two giant Rubbermaid tubs. Oh, three giant Rubbermaid tubs. And here's the stuff that hasn't even made it in there yet. And it's just, it's just... If one person making a couple dozen pieces can produce this much waste, how much is being made in factories worldwide? It's a lot. It's scary a lot. It is a lot. It's something on the order of one garbage truck every second. 
But if there's one thing that I've promised myself that Outside In will not be, it is a show about the constant bummer of seeing the impacts of being a human in a consumptive economy. So, dear listener, we submit to you that this is a problem that has solutions readily at hand, and we're going to tell you about them. Not a bummer. Not a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, kind of a bummer, but we'll help. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Textiles are all around us. We live in them, sleep on them, sit on them, walk on them, live in houses filled with them. It's one of the biggest industries in the world, but it's also one with a big problem. And, at least to consumers in the United States, a largely invisible problem. Textile waste. Today, Eric Janik is tearing the very shirt off your back to explore the oldest new approach to textiles that could eliminate millions of tons of garbage a year. Okay, so this is so we have fabric. It's very sparkly. <laughs> We've laid out yes. a sparkly piece of fabric on the floor. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Sparkly fabric. In case you've never seen how clothes actually get made, here's a quick explainer. Imagine a big rectangle of rolled-out gingerbread dough. That's the fabric. So what are you putting on the fabric here? So these are pattern pieces. This is for a shirt. Each piece of a dress or shirt, pockets, collars, etc., requires a different design, a different shaped cookie cutter that's going to be placed onto the dough. This is the sleeve. This is the front, folded in half. What Erica's doing right now is showing me how the cookie cutters fit on a big piece of dough. She's got the time and the motivation to really try to get as many cookies out of this dough as she can. But clothes make for a bunch of really strangely shaped cookies. You can still see, like, I didn't use this whole piece. And there's still fabric around the edge. Right, like kind kind of a lot. Right, and like, when you're a home sewer, you're pretty economical with what you're doing. But if you're making 100 million shirts... You need to make them as quickly as possible, and you're not trying to make them all fit on this piece of fabric. You're, I need to cut one front, put it right there, and then I'm going to throw the rest of that out. The way that fabric is cut in sort of mass manufacture where you you have dozens and sometimes um, I think um, even up to 100 layers of fabric on top of each other, and you have a essentially was like a bandsaw going through those layers. In that case, This is Timo Rasanen. He's a designer and assistant professor of fashion design and sustainability at the Parsons School. He went into fashion like a lot of people do, studying design and then working at big fashion houses. I had a menswear brand in Australia from 2001 to 2004, and um, sometimes literally half of the fabric that, you know, I needed for a T-shirt would go in the trash. Seeing the waste in mass production is what made Timo decide he had to think about clothes differently to create designs that produce little to no waste. About six years ago, with an artist in Finland, we built a factory inside a museum where we had a garment worker make white T-shirts for no reason other than just for the sake of making white T-shirts. And and, um, But also, so we made the labor visible, but also the the waste that was created in the making of the T-shirts if somebody wanted to buy one of those t-shirts, they also had to take the waste with them and then figure out what to do with it. <laughs> so, and we got some great responses from people. People did some um, interesting customization with the, with the scraps um, onto the t-shirts and things like that. 
Using the scraps or not creating any waste at all is known as zero waste design. And it's our first solution to the problem of rampant textile waste. In other words, start with design, change the fashion, and we'll use less waste by default. But creating clothing with zero waste is challenging, especially in a global system that wasn't built with reducing waste in mind. Denim, for instance, comes on a big roll that measures 60 inches wide. You could change that width to reduce waste, but it would require an expensive re-engineering of a supply line that spans the globe. To get a sense of how big a problem that would be, and how we got here, we have to go back in time. Clothing used to be made here in the United States. Uh, about half of our clothes were still made here as recently as uh, 1990. This is journalist Elizabeth Klein. She's the author of the book Overdressed. Textiles were a key driver of the industrialization of the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was also a major employer of women. Um, and then all of that changed very, very, very quickly to the point where by the early 2000s, it was almost unheard of to walk into a store and see something that was made in the United States. The globalization of the fashion industry gave clothing brands access to really cheap labor and a huge pool of factories, mostly in Asia. For these nations, textiles are a really attractive industry, just as they were for the U.S. in the 18th century. It's labor-intensive, but the equipment is cheap, and it's labor that continues to be done largely by women. And so with these changes, fashion companies made a choice. Instead of making higher quality products and selling them at a slightly higher price and making less, we're going to start making clothes as a disposable product, make more and more and more of it, selling, sell it for cheaper at a lower markup and see if people will go for it. And we did. Clothes got cheaper and we started buying more of them. A lot more of them. 80 to 100 billion garments are made a year. With about 7.5 billion people on the planet, that's roughly 13 garments per person. But most people on the planet aren't buying that much. Nearly all of that consumption is happening in North America and Europe. Because who can resist a $5 t-shirt? And what's the harm in owning a few pairs of $29 jeans? This is likely the fast fashion clothing story you've heard. Even if your interest in clothing and textiles is purely utilitarian. Sheets to sleep on, a shirt and pants to get you through the day. We're not only buying more clothes, though. We're also wearing those clothes a lot less. It's about half as long as it was 20 years ago. And some, some clothing use surveys show that there are people that are only wearing something between three and seven times at the most extreme before they consider it old and move on to something else. 90% of clothing is uh, thrown away or donated um, before it's worn out. So there are clothes that get bought but barely used. Scraps from all those barely used clothes. And there's another source of waste. Clothes that are made and never get used at all. Brands are producing so many clothes every year that nearly a third of the 100 billion garments made annually 
are never sold. Burberry takes extreme measures to protect its brand by burning millions of dollars worth In 2017, Burberry made headlines for burning 28.6 million pounds of unsold clothing, reportedly worth more than $35 million. The company calls the seemingly wasteful method a way to control brand authenticity. And H&M has also been accused of burning more than 60 tons of clothes since 2013. It's a claim they dispute, though a Swedish power plant in H&M's hometown has replaced coal with clothes. Now, burning waste for energy is its own complicated environmental issue, but we can maybe all agree that burning never-worn clothing doesn't seem like the ideal fuel for generating electricity. People were outraged about H&M burning clothes because they were unsold. They were brand new. They'd never been worn. So you think about all of the water and all of the energy and all of the cotton or polyester, that oil that went into the polyester, all the resources that went into making those clothes just to have them burned. It's, oh, my gosh, it's so it's outrageous. Um, it's just it's so inexcusable. And um, unfortunately, I think that it's it's common practice. Brands are very good at hiding it. But a lot of brands uh, from fast fashion all the way through luxury destroy their unsold product um, at the end of the season. It's it's very, very prevalent. Maybe you're thinking right now, burn them. Why not just recycle them or reuse them? It turns out that fabric, whole clothes or scraps, isn't easily recycled into something else. One reason is the nature of the material. Cotton, for instance, is made of long fibers. The longer the fiber, the softer, more silky feel that cotton has. But if you cut those fibers to make a new piece of clothing, the cotton gets less soft. Current brands that do use recycled cotton mix them with new fibers, so your jeans, for instance, are still comfy. Recycling sacrifices comfort. Then there's synthetics like nylon, lycra, polyester, that don't easily recycle either. When you see recycled man-made fabrics, they've been made from plastic bottles, not from a pre-worn polyester t-shirt. The recycling programs that do exist are largely limited to fabrics made of a single fiber. But very few of us are wearing all cotton or all linen clothes. More than half of our clothes are now made of cheaper synthetic fibers, and even more are blends. Okay, but what about thrift stores? While buying secondhand at thrift shops is a good way to opt out of the fashion industry's labor and environmental problems, donating that bridesmaid dress or awesome 80s band t-shirt to Goodwill or the Salvation Army is not exactly a perfect solution. Charities like Goodwill might take anywhere from 10 to 20% of donated material for their retail stores. The other 80 to 90% ends up with this guy, or guys like him. Uh, my name is Eric Steuben. I am the president and CEO of Transamerica Textile Recycling, a recycler of secondhand clothing. Textile recyclers and rag graders like Eric Steuben have been around for a really long time. It's actually the oldest recycling industry, though recycling in this case is really reuse. So about half the material will get turned into either fiber or reclaimed rags. And about 45% of the material will be find a second life as secondhand clothing. Hmm. Is that all done by people? Uh, yeah, it's a very labor-intensive process. In our facility, 70 people sort through uh, approximately 70,000 pounds of clothing every day. A small percentage is resold as vintage clothing. The rest, 
97% of the stuff that isn't turned into rags is exported, largely to Africa, something that Eric sees as a benefit to the African economy. You know, secondhand clothing in places like Sub-Saharan Africa is responsible for significant portions of the economy. USAID has said that it's a key driver of the economy um, as well. So uh, it really has a positive impact overseas where we see tremendous demand. So the impact of secondhand clothes in East Africa is a hotly debated, contested issue. This is journalist Elizabeth Klein again. She says not everyone agrees with Eric. There's kind of mounting evidence that even in East Africa, where there is a big demand for our secondhand clothes, a lot of it still ends up going into the landfill or being incinerated there. Hmm. People are donating things without bothering to wash them. There's like food and pet hair all over it. Um, it's just this really low quality, worthless stuff that that means that uh, African countries are stuck with the, uh, the bill for landfilling our garbage. The waste may be largely hidden from us now, but it's unlikely to stay that way. American charities and thrift stores have been overwhelmed by clothing donations in recent years, fueled by minimalism and the joy-sparking techniques of Marie Kondo. And shipping clothes overseas may not be an option in the near future. Members of the East African community, including Rwanda and Uganda, have proposed banning the import of secondhand clothes to stimulate their own local textile industries and to cut down on absorbing our outsourced waste. Just to reiterate, buying from thrift stores is fine, in fact, if more Americans did this, fewer clothes would get landfilled in developing countries. But there's way more supply of secondhand clothes than demand for them, which means they still get tossed. And we're still left at the end of the day with a pile of scraps with no obvious path to a second life. Yeah, I, I think the visibility or the lack of visibility is a big issue, uh, both to designers but also to the bigger public. Um, because if we don't know about something, it's very difficult to care about it. Erica! <laughs> We promised solutions. We said this would not be an unrelenting bummer. Ugh, Sam. Fine. That's after the break. <laughs> the legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. 
Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Before the break, Erica Janik was taking us down through the clothes apocalypse that we've created for ourselves. Now, a way to design our way out. Maybe. So a few years ago, Timo Rasanen, the Parsons professor, set out to create a simple button-down shirt that produced no waste. It didn't go so well at first. It's a really kind of like avant-garde conceptual cool kind of thing, but it's like, no, it's just actually kind of ugly. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so it was kind of the unresolved thing. So I wanted to create a button-down shirt that I actually was happy with the look of. The goal was something that served a practical purpose, the classic kind of work shirt, rather than a piece of modern art. And that's what I set out to do. And so I really worked with the silhouette first, so working with fabric on on the body, uh, finding a shape that I was really happy with, and then starting to look at those pieces. You know, I had the body and the sleeves um, figured out, um, starting to look at those pieces on the actual fabric width and seeing what kind of spaces, you know, arranging them in different ways, what kind of spaces were created, out of which I could then figure out the cuffs and the collars and, and whether it was going to have pockets and things like that. And so, so it's a... It's a you know, a long, iterative, really messy and at times very frustrating process. Zero waste is a philosophy rather than a particular method. It's also a mental challenge, in part because he and other zero waste designers are working with lengths of fabric designed for efficient production rather than for environmental benefits. Timo's tried a lot of different ways of cutting and folding to make things, including pajamas out of some old sheets. I used a different technique in that I worked with paper um, because it was easy to cut pieces of paper to the same proportions as, as the two fabric rectangles and then I just folded paper and it was also very efficient in terms of space because I could do that in my office at my desk and um, one wall of the office was covered with this paper fold <laughs> and uh, it kind of looked like um, you know Christmas decorations without any semblance of Christmas. <laughs> Timo's struggles to design for no waste are real. But producing clothing with little waste isn't new. It's something we know how to do already, or we used to. If you look at a lot of historical garments, even in in Europe, uh, if you go back to the late 1800s, you start to find examples of garments that were cut very efficiently. And and also people just had a different relationship with material. Um, This idea of waste barely existed. Many cultures through history have designed clothing that wasted very little fabric. These items were designed to be folded or draped to use as much of a piece of fabric as possible. Kimonos, kilts, even togas are all ways to wear a square without being a square. You might have heard the expression, the whole nine yards, referred to the fact that the traditional patterns for a kilt took nine yards of fabric to create. This doesn't actually appear to be true, since the expression seems to have popped up in the United States first, but the sentiment of the myth is spot on. Kilts are made of a single piece of fabric many yards long. Garments were also made to be remade and altered again and again, because fabric was precious and expensive. Fabrics like cotton and linen are plants that have to be grown and harvested in season. Or in the case of wool, you need land and a bunch of sheep. But today, fabric is cheap and can be made without plants or animals. And fashion is a global, year-round industry. Now, labor and time are more expensive than fabric, so it's more profitable in the short term for companies to just punch out clothes as fast as they can, scraps be damned. And either way, modern clothing designs themselves aren't helping. 
designers experiment with all kinds of things that look cool but are super wasteful. Think of a wedding dress or any kind of standard formal wear for women. Most of these garments are form-fitting and curvy. It's those curves in the pattern pieces that tend to produce more scraps. Even a men's suit is made up of lapels and collars and pockets, a bunch of pieces that are all cut from a length of fabric and are surrounded by wasted fabric. Same with running tights and any number of clothes that aren't variations on a square. There are some things that we love to wear that are hard to make zero waste. So for this to work, we might have to give them up or at least rethink what a wedding dress looks like. But zero waste designers also need to make something that people want to wear. Remember Timo and his attempts to make a simple button-down shirt like millions of people wear to work every day? I showed Sam a few zero waste patterns to see what he thought. Oh, that's that's zero waste? That is zero waste. It's a button-down shirt. The sleeves are like maybe a little puffy. They are, yeah. But only like very slightly puffy. Right. Yeah, and I think they're just very cleverly like folded over. Like, would you wear that? I would totally wear that. Okay. Let's see. Ripped leggings. Yes. But they're fairly form-fitting. See? Zero waste can be stylish. Let's look at this. This is a, a hoodie. Yeah. That's a little more avant-garde. It is. Um, but it, I could imagine more stylish friends of mine wearing that. Yeah, but looking at the pattern, you can see it's like it's complicated to get there. Mm. Oh, this is the back of, the sh- of that button-down. I don't even know what that is exactly. Some kind of quilting going on in the back. Kind of like butt ruffles. <laughs> I think they look better than butt ruffles sound. <laughs> butt ruffles sound very unappealing. I say, say butt ruffles without any judgment. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> butt ruffles for all. While Timo ties himself in knots, trying to figure out how to design modern clothes with zero waste patterns, most designers, he says, are focused on the fashion. For them, butt ruffles are not going to fly, and waste is a secondary concern. In the kind of the day-to-day job of a designer, you don't really see it. And that's partly because of the way that the industry operates now, where design tends to be in places like New York City or um, you know London or Paris, but then the the actual making of the garment and the mass production of things tends to be in other countries. And so any kind of problems, whether it's the issues to do with waste or also to do with labor, they tend to be very invisible to the designer. Designers don't see the problem, and neither do we, because we've exported the industry and its labor and waste overseas. So my name is Rachel. And I run Tonelay, which is a zero-waste fashion business. This is Rachel Fowler. Rachel's business, Tonelay, is based in Cambodia. Textiles are the backbone of the Cambodian economy. More than 600 factories produce clothes for 200 brands like Nike, Gap, and Adidas. Rachel first went to Cambodia in 2007 and returned again on a Fulbright grant, where she saw both sides of the fashion equation. Under the Fulbright grant, I came into contact both with you know, artisans who were producing in these very traditional ways that were sort of, we could call slow fashion now, but also the bigger scale textile and garment industry, which is very, very present in Cambodia. So Rachel saw what was happening and decided she wanted to try something else to create the kind of clothing she'd actually want to wear. Fashionable, but also affordable, moral, and responsibly made. There aren't many raw materials in Cambodia that are produced sustainably. A lot of the material is being imported. So then I started turning to recycled materials. 
And then I discovered more about this problem with waste in the garment industry. I was like, okay, that's that's what I'm going to tackle. To me, that was like a no-brainer. Okay, it's like, there's all this stuff here that's going to be thrown away, that's going to end up polluting the environment. Let's Let's use that as a first step. Rachel started buying overstock fabric from the markets in Cambodia. Fabric left over from all of those textile mills producing for big clothing companies. I, I didn't want to throw things away when everyone else was throwing so much away. So it just kind of became this design challenge. How do we incorporate these scraps into our designs? And, um, and until eventually, you know, we had really tiny scraps left. We start, I, I partnered with a couple of weaving groups and I went and I trained them how to incorporate those woven you know, incorporate these small scraps into new textiles. And then eventually we had very small scraps left from that and we started making paper out of them. Zero waste was her goal from the start, but it took a decade to get there. Rachel's designs aren't like the fabric origami of designers like Timo, but rather designs that make use of all of the scraps for everything from accessories down to the tags. Looking at them, you'd never know they were zero waste. Rachel's clothes have the clean aesthetic of a lot of modern brands, loose-fitting and flowy. But how do you do this at scale? Tonle is a relatively small business, but Rachel says she's faced pressure from stores to produce new items more often. Places like H&M and Zara, new clothes every week, sometimes every day, has conditioned consumers to want something new more often. It's a classic feedback loop. Companies make more money when they roll out new stuff, which trains consumers to want the newest clothes, which drives companies to roll out the next line ever faster. Timo thinks that this means brands are pushing new fashions faster than consumers are even asking for them. That actually, like, you know, fashion doesn't actually change at that rate. Like, your product might change, but that's... We're not talking about real fashion change. That's just um, marketing at this point and, and really an attempt to push more stuff and also an attempt to make whatever was in there last week obsolete. Then there's the price. Maybe you've looked at sustainable clothing and thought, how can anyone afford that? You know, a lot of times people tell me, oh, ethical and sustainable fashion is expensive. But what they mean is independent ethical and sustainable fashion is expensive. Mm -hmm. But major brands, we should be pointing the finger at them because it's their fault that it's not affordable because they're the ones that aren't there. They have the scale uh, and they have the leverage to make sustainable and ethical fashion uh, and bring it to the masses at a price that everybody can afford. Zero waste design is hard and requires a wholesale change, something even its ardent proponents like Timo is the first to admit is unlikely to take over the industry. That's not to say that big designers can't do it, though. Kenneth Cole released a zero waste T-shirt last year. Some governments have started taking note of all of this, too. The UK's Environmental Audit Committee recently recommended a tax on individual garments that would fund a national textile recycling program. So where does that leave us? So where does that leave us? <laughs> we I <laughs> Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as I was thinking about this, 
it does feel to me that while this is big and uh, and a large problem, that compared to some of the large problems that we have, the solutions are kind of obvious, right? So so we can tick through them. Obviously, just buy fewer clothes. Yep. Uh, and wear your clothes for longer. Good ideas, good ideas. Buy, buy secondhand, wear your clothes until they're just toast. And make rags out of them, maybe? When you're done, yeah. use your scraps. And then when you do buy new, buy better stuff and wear that for longer. The zero waste thing is kind of the uh, you know, the very last line of defense that if it's possible to buy these things that are produced in a more sustainable way, then go for that. Absolutely. You know, I mean, something that I think a lot about is I can... Not to brag, but I <laughs> I can really make just about anything I want. And yeah. when I first started sewing, I did make way too many things. Yeah. Like I can be my own H and M. And it's and it's really tempting to do that because I have this sewing superpower. Mm-hmm. But I am also like those bins of scraps, like <laughs> you know, we joked about them, but like I actually feel terrible about them. Yeah. Um and so karmic burden every time you go up to the sewing loft. Absolutely, which is why I've like hidden them around the corner. But <laughs> I still know they're there. And that and the solution for me has really been about really thinking about what I actually need and only making that. And I you know, I think you don't have to make your own clothes to still have those thoughts. Like think about what you actually need. Well, and I, I will say that uh your sewing habit, while it might feel terrible to see those scrap bins around the corner, it actually does make you more aware of the problem. That's absolutely true. I'm not sure I ever would have realized this if I hadn't started making my own clothes. I feel like the reporting here has revealed one solution to your scrap problem, which is you can just soak your rags in gasoline and burn them in your wood stove <laughs> to heat your home. <laughs> Apparently it works. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just let them pile up around you. To- Who needs sheets? I'm just going to start sleeping on a bed of scraps. <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by Eric Janik and Taylor Quimby with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Erica's dog, Britt. Extra special thanks to Taylor Quimby for all of his help keeping Erica on track. She told me to say that because it's absolutely true. Music in this week's episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.